0: Truly, we're in a race
1: to make value work.
2: Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. To value listeners, this month is Military Appreciation Month, and we wanted to use this week's show as an opportunity to offer our solemn regard and deep gratitude to the brave men, women, and their families who have served our nation with such selflessness, gallantry, and sacrifice in upholding our foremost ideals of liberty. We are grateful for their nobility, for their duty, and for their sacrifice. We are grateful that they loved country more than self and that we live in a nation that is free. We are grateful that from our history mixed of struggle, prosperity, injustice, progress, perfection, and imperfection, there today is a greater potential to live a self-determined life than ever before. We are grateful that our liberty and our pursuits of virtue – equity, and happiness, and value-based care continue to be protected by those that now serve. We express our gratitude for all of those who have served and now serve to preserve our country, our security, and our liberty. We have invited a veterans advocate unlike any other. In this episode, you will be hearing from the Honorable David Shulkin, M.D., the former U.S. Secretary of Veteran Affairs, who I believe is one of the most courageous leaders in the value movement that we've had on the show. This is an interview, Daniel, that I've been looking forward to for a long time, and I can't wait to share this.
1: Eric, I couldn't agree more. For those who don't know Dr. David Shulkin, he's a national thought leader on veterans health and patient-centered care. He's a physician, an executive, a public servant, author, academic, and entrepreneur. After serving in several prominent leadership roles in the private sector, such as president and CEO of Beth Israel Health System, president of Morristown Medical Center and its ACO, Atlantic Accountable Care Organization, he was asked by President Obama to lead the nation's largest integrated healthcare system as undersecretary for Veterans Affairs. A few years later, the United States Senate unanimously confirmed Dr. Shulkin as the US Secretary of Veterans Affairs in a 100 to zero vote making him the only cabinet nominee by President Trump to have unanimous consent. For those of you who don't know much about the VA, it's a behemoth of an agency. The Veterans Administration is the second largest federal agency with a budget of $273 billion. It has 377,000 employees and serves millions of veterans across 170 medical centers and over 1,000 outpatient sites.
2: Dr. David Shulkin had a call to serve our country to improve the health of our veterans. Let's go ahead and hear from him as he joins us in this Race to Value. Dr. Shulkin, it's such a great honor to have you on the Race to Value podcast. This month is Military Appreciation Month, and we really wanted to spend this time discussing your calling to serve our country to improve the health of veterans. Thanks so much for joining us on the show.
0: I'm glad to be here.
2: Dr. Shulkin, as we begin our conversation today, I thought we could talk about why the healthcare industry should look to the VA for innovation. The vast majority of listeners out there are in the private sector, health system CEOs, ACO executives, physicians. They're probably not aware of how innovative the VA really is. I mean, the VA brought us the first liver transplant the invention of the cardiac defibrillator, the radioimmunoassay. It was an early pioneer in hemodialysis. and provided us early work that led to the CAT scan. It showed us that we can use aspirin to prevent cardiac deaths, provided the 1st barcoded wristband for medications. It was a leader in the patient safety movement, and it's a leading example of how a health system can have a fully integrated longitudinal electronic health record for its patient population. I know you were called to serve as Undersecretary of Veteran Affairs for President Barack Obama at a time when you needed to transform the VA system and you were thinking going into the role. I'm going to learn a lot, but I, I already know a lot and from the private sector, and I'm going to go ahead and turn things around. And what I understand is that you found out it was actually the opposite. Can you tell us what you learned early on in your tenure as undersecretary that led you to believe that the VA is actually an exemplar of innovation that we should look to from the private sector instead of the other way around. Also, as a health system that is entirely unconflicted with fee-for-service reimbursement, what can we learn from the VA as we look to build a more value-based healthcare delivery system in the private sector that focuses more on patient-centered care and population health?
0: Well, I entered the VA as undersecretary, and I had spent a career in the private sector running private sector healthcare organizations. And so I thought I would come in and use those skills to change government. In fact, the experience was quite the opposite where I learned that there were things going on in the VA healthcare system that i never really thought about as a executive in the private sector that were really very powerful. It expanded my definition of how they impact health and wellness by focusing on things that weren't purely physical health care, such as the integration of behavioral health care and physical health care, the use of non-traditional therapies like adaptive sports and service dogs and helping people if they were in requirement of economic help or finding a good secure home to live in. So the VA was a much more expansive model of impacting a person's life than what I had experienced just being a physician or a healthcare executive. And so I learned such a great deal about it. And as you mentioned, one of the reasons is because in the private sector, you really need to design your services around the current reimbursement environment where what payers are able and willing to pay for. But in the VA system, the money is given from Congress and once you're allocated the money, you can begin to start thinking about where can that money best be used to improve the health of a population, in this case, the population of veterans in the country. And it's a much more freeing experience. And frankly, the outcomes are really quite improved over what you can see in a much narrower definition of healthcare delivery.
1: Dr. Shulkin, it's so exciting to hear your perspective about the VA as a source of inspiration for value-based care transformation. Despite such great success in care innovation, the VA is not without its challenges. We remember prior to your appointment as undersecretary in 2015, the VA was rocked by a national scandal over appointment delays that were linked to veteran deaths. And throughout 2014, the VA was in a major crisis that led to investigations by the FBI Congress, the Obama administration, and the Office of the Special Counsel. And during this time of crisis, you're in the private sector serving as a chief executive of a large tertiary acute care facility, children's hospital, and rehabilitation hospital. You're also the president of a large ACO and physician organization. And by every measure of success as a healthcare executive and physician leader, you're at the pinnacle of achievement. However, the VA wait time scandal moved you deeply. You even mentioned to someone how reading about these horrible wait times for our veterans made you regret not being able to do something about it. And then your phone rings and it's a call from the White House and they wanted to talk to you about fixing the VA. Can you tell us what it was like to be called to serve in such a way that not only helped our country and its veterans, but also connected with you on a deeply personal level? And once you were appointed as undersecretary, can you walk us through how you were able to challenge the status quo in those early months of leadership when you took charge of the crisis, taking us from 50,000 veterans waiting for urgent care more than 30 days and bringing that down to almost zero, at the same time improving delivery of same-day services and telehealth and publicly publishing wait times for the entire country to see?
0: Yeah, I came to... Government, not by design, but, but really somewhat opportunistically, in having a conversation with somebody that had been connected to government. I didn't know it at the time. And just expressing my concern as a citizen that what I was reading about in the newspaper and watching on TV about the wait time crisis in the VA was really something that I felt terribly about and that I wish that there was something I could do. Because I felt that if there's any group of Americans who deserve the best that the healthcare system could offer, it was our veterans. And when you're watching and listening and learning about veterans not even being able to get access to basic healthcare, that's just something that I'm sure that I was not alone in in being disappointed in. And that led to me being asked to come and help solve the problem. And, And of course, I knew even though it was complicated to think about leaving my job and moving to Washington and joining government, I knew that I probably wouldn't say no because I just felt it was an obligation to help those who have sacrificed so much for our country. It was the least I could do is try to help it if I felt that I had some skills that could help in that situation. When I got to VA, which required quite a long process because the undersecretary position requires Senate confirmation. So you have to go through an extensive vetting and confirmation process. But when I eventually got to government and took on the role as undersecretary, which is the person that leads the healthcare system for the Veterans Affairs uh, Department, I was faced with 57,000 veterans are waiting for urgent medical care more than 30 days. And the job of a leader of any organization, I think, is to do three things. One is to ask the right questions of the organization to make sure that you have an understanding of what the current situation is. And I asked The questions that I thought were the right ones to be able to get to understand that the problem was 57,000 veterans waiting for urgent care. Once I knew the problem, then the second job of a leader is to set the priority of the organization. And of course, for me, the priority was to get all 57,000 of those veterans who are waiting more than 30 days for care to be seen immediately because there was potential harm in those veterans waiting even a day longer. And then third is to set a vision and a course for the organization to be better at what it does. And in a mission-driven organization like the Department of Veteran Affairs, it's pretty clear what the goal is. It's not to raise the stock price. It's to take better care of veterans. So identifying that we had 57,000 veterans waiting for urgent care more than 30 days, I uh, called for a national stand down, which essentially means that everybody in the VA, all 350,000 people who worked for the VA healthcare system would stop what they were doing and focus on getting those 57,000 veterans seen immediately. And we were able to do that and get those veterans taken care of. Once we were able to do that, then I wanted to make sure that we would never be in a situation where that wait list would build up again. And the only way I knew how to do that was to establish the vision, the goal of having same day appointments, same day services for people with urgent medical problems. And by the end of the Obama administration, by the end of 2016, I was able to tell the president that we had implemented same day services in every VA medical center in the country. So that was a way that I knew that we would solve that issue, that we wouldn't see a repeat of that issue ever again. And in order to ensure that there was accountability for that, I made sure that we published our wait times publicly so that people could actually track and see how we were doing in terms of honoring that commitment,
2: Dr. Shulkin, I had the great pleasure of reading your book. It shouldn't be this hard to serve your country. And I know it has two meanings. It shouldn't be that hard to serve your country when you're a veteran that you, can, you can't get access to urgent care until your leadership. And then it also shouldn't be that hard to serve your country as a leader in the public sector trying to help veterans in this toxic political environment in Washington. So, after President Obama left office, you vacated your appointment as undersecretary of the VA, which many of our listeners should know is more like a chief medical director for the VA. And then you stepped into a cabinet role as U.S. Secretary of Veteran Affairs for the Trump administration, overseeing the entire system. As secretary, you were on President Trump's cabinet. It's been eye-opening to hear about how… The two administrations were complete polar opposites of each other, You know, Obama compared to Trump. And then getting back to that dual meaning of the book title, I'm thinking about this toxic political climate. And as a leader, you live your life by principles and not by rules. And you accepted your role in government and were prepared to lose your job if asked to do something that you didn't believe in that would help veterans. In the Trump administration, you spoke out. When you felt veterans were not being cared for or respected, when President Trump dismissed the deadly altercation in Charlottesville in 2017, you spoke out and said it is a dishonor to our country's veterans to allow the Nazis and the white supremacists to go unchallenged. In 2018, you then decided to add three health conditions to the list of diseases eligible for Agent Orange benefits, and the White House challenged your authority on that. And then as this last straw for you in the Trump administration, you challenged the issue of VA privatization because you believed it was aimed at rewarding select people and companies with profits and would ultimately undermine care for veterans. So, Dr. Shulkin, what was it like to find out that you were fired by President Trump when you read his Twitter feed? And then you were ultimately fired for standing up for what you believed in, protecting our country's veterans can you share what that was like? And then for those leaders out there listening to this interview who are hitting a brick wall, trying to innovate for patient-centeredness, health equity, and value-based care, and they're facing opposition, what can they be thinking about how they can lead to challenge the status quo in this fee-for-service world?
0: Yeah, and I left government writing a book called It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, and it really did have two meanings to the title. The first is, is that this is a book about how we can continue to make sure that we have a strong system of care for our veterans when they go off to serve their country and they come back and they need help. I do believe that the system should work much better than it currently does for them. And so I wrote a book that outlines a game plan a framework for improving the system in the future so that a new leadership team that comes in doesn't have to start from a blank sheet of paper that they could see what I felt was working and what I felt should be continued. The second meaning of the book, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, was about my own personal experience of being in public service. And Being in Washington these days is not an easy task, and I entered Washington really the way that the original framers of the Constitution meant it to be that private citizens should leave their jobs and go and serve in government and then go back into the private sector again, that this is a government of, of private citizens, not of politicians, And I didn't run for office. I had no political aspirations. I just wanted to come in and make a difference. And so entering an environment that was so partisan was often at times complex and actually personally painful being subjected to the things that political environments put normal people through. And so I described my personal story, but, you know, I think to summarize what I was trying to do, I was trying to stay true to my principles. And that was, was that I believe that it was important to strengthen the system and to improve the system of care for our veterans. And when I ran into people that were trying to implement political ideology, such as, you know, we don't believe government should be in the healthcare business or other political ideologies. I just didn't play along with those games and that, that would annoy people. And so, you know, I was the only member when I stayed on in the Trump administration in the cabinet that had a Senate confirmation of a hundred to zero, because people knew that I wasn't playing partisan games. And ultimately when you do that, you have to be willing to put your job on the line. That if there are people asking you to do things that violate what you believe in and violate your principles, you unfortunately have to be willing to take the consequences. And that means that you may have to leave your position. That's not the goal because you can't continue to do good and to help if you leave your position. But on the other hand, I don't think you can do good and help if you bend your principles to meet a political objective. So ultimately, there were forces in play that wanted to privatize the VA. And that means essentially turn it over to the private sector through a voucher system. And I just simply wasn't willing to do that. And ultimately, you know, the president fired me by tweet. That, of course, is something that I didn't expect. I didn't necessarily want, but I was willing to accept the consequences. When you're serving as a political appointee in an, in an administration, as I did in both the Obama and the Trump administrations, you serve at the pleasure of the president. And So those are the rules that you knew that you were serving under. And, and that was something I was willing to live with the consequences. And and often during my time, particularly in the Trump administration, I would speak out when I didn't believe that the decisions being made that impacted me were consistent with my principles. And so on multiple occasions, I thought I might be fired. And ultimately I was. And, And my response to that was to try to continue to fight and advocate for veterans, even though I'm no longer in office, I continue to work with many veterans organizations. I continued to be active on the policy front because uh, I still strongly believe that much more can and should be done for our veterans.
1: Dr. Shulkin, I have such profound admiration for you in speaking up for what you believe in in your service to our veterans, even though it ultimately cost you your job. During your leadership in the private sector, your principles connected your values to your actions and our country is better for it. Your service made a difference in the health of veterans, and you didn't have to compromise your principles to do that. But I can only imagine how it must have felt for you in the last year to be on the sideline, seeing the federal government struggle in its response to the pandemic. Although it's unquestionable that Operation Warp Speed was instrumental in the vaccine development process, there's a list of missteps that took place with the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic. A physician did not backfill your role on the cabinet. So one would think that you could have added an additional expert medical perspective to the White House Coronavirus Task Force. In any case, I'd like to ask you if you could share your thoughts on the pandemic and its impact on the future of healthcare. As we get through this pandemic, do you think COVID-19 will have created a more resilient American health system going forward? And what implications do you think COVID-19 will have on the movement to value-based care in our country?
0: It was a hard year for me to be sitting on the sideline during the pandemic when you're a healthcare leader and you've had a chance to see how government can have a positive impact. Uh, sitting on the sideline and not being in the center of it was actually probably harder for me personally than if I had been there, where I felt like I knew what government should be doing in a time of crisis. And and. Most of 2020, during the Trump administration, I was very involved in watching and in commenting on what government should be doing. And in the most part, I was very critical of the Trump administrative response. Now, I do think the Trump administration deserved uh, credit for its participation with Operation Warp Speed. And I think that the type of public-private partnership that we saw between industry and government was a very positive thing. And it led to a vaccine in eight months period of time, which, which which is really an incredible feat. And again, credit is deserved there. But I think when you take a look at the pandemic in its entirety, our failure to have an effective biosurveillance system to have identified this risk early on, our failure with testing of COVID early on never really allowed us to catch up. Our failure to effectively have a singular message and communication about how one can protect themselves from this viral spread and what led to the politicization of a pandemic are all things that I think were missteps that were self-inflicted and avoidable. So it really demonstrated to me why it's so important to have people who have experience and competence in roles of government. It is primarily for times of crisis and issues that impact the lives of the American public. And I think that we had too many failures along those lines. I think the Biden administration has done this well by focusing on a singular message on setting goals that are transparent, on trying to connect policy that is in alignment with the scientific community to restore trust in the role of government in the leadership of a pandemic. I think all of these things are positive. And and I think most of us are feeling more hopeful about coming out the other end of this pandemic than we ever have. So I think, for me, this has been reaffirming about the role that government plays and why it's so important that we get this right.
2: Dr. Shulkin, as our country moves towards a more patient-centered, value-based care model, I think we have a lot to learn from the VA. And as I understand, at the VA, you implemented what is called a whole health model of care. And it's visualized by these three circles of having peers that help navigate patients, and focusing on the well-being, and then looking at the team of healthcare professionals and how they can support that whole health environment. That third circle is so important. At the ACLC, we believe in empowerment of the workforce, and I know one of the more controversial things that that you had done as secretary was looking at advanced practice nurses and. And really allowing them to practice at the top of their license without su- uh, physician supervision, even in states where it would otherwise prohibit them from doing that. I mean, you had fierce opposition, 375,000 messages and phone calls and heavy influence peddling from Washington lobbyists and members of Congress, and you stuck to your guns because you believe that whole person care requires an interdisciplinary team where everyone practices to the fullest extent of their scope and license. So Dr. Shulkin, I just wanted you to speak generally to this whole health model. Can you, you know, just discuss, you know, what that is and, you know, what can the civilian healthcare system learn from this model as it transitions to value-based care?
0: Yeah, the whole health system of care in the VA, I think is a very interesting model to understand particularly for those in the private sector, really consists of an intersection of three models, teaching patients, in this case veterans, how to care for themselves, giving them a toolbox in which to participate as an active member of their healthcare team. So teaching them not only how to speak up on their desires and preferences and how they get healthcare, but teaching them certain skills like mindfulness, yoga, tai chi, other types of mindfulness skills to be able to improve their own health. The second feature of the whole health program is peer advocacy. And the VA actually trains peers, other veterans, to be able to work with veterans to help advocate for them and help navigate them through a complex healthcare journey. And the third and final component of the whole health model is to train teams of providers, of clinicians, to work as a team rather than as individuals. So physicians, psychologists, pharmacists, social workers, physical therapists, all working together on behalf of a veteran and implementing that team environment. So when you intersect peers, self-care, and teams, you get pretty phenomenal outcomes. In the VA, a study of 285,000 veterans working in this model showed significant improvements in healthcare outcomes, reductions in opioid use, reductions in healthcare services, improvements in well-being, and actually not only for veterans, but also for the providers themselves with better satisfaction of working in an environment that implements a whole healthcare model.
1: Dr. Shulkin, as you began your work in public sector, you had this powerful sharpen the saw moment when you really learned how to help patients best. Shortly after you were brought into the VA by President Obama in 2015, you took a trip to the VA Winter Sports Clinic in Aspen, Colorado. And you saw veterans learning how to ski and participate in competitive sports and saw how impactful it was on their healing, more so than even what traditional medicine could offer. Can you share with our listeners your experience with these disabled veterans and how it made you a better physician and healthcare executive? How can industry leaders better learn this lesson that psychological, social, economic, and spiritual well-being play an equally, if not greater, role in healing so that this wisdom can be applied to reimagining our entire healthcare system for the better?
0: One of the things I've always done as a healthcare executive is put on my White coat since I'm a primary care doctor and go and experience the healthcare system as a provider because that allows me to interact with patients. It allows me to work with those that work in the system and see actually what's happening. And one of the first things that I did when I began to practice in the VA system was I went out to Aspen, Colorado, to what was called the Winter Sports Clinic, where The VA would take 400 veterans who had been paralyzed or lost an arm or leg or suffering from extreme emotional disorders and take them on the mountains and do adaptive skiing. And what that meant for the veterans who participated in these winter sports clinics is that these were often very fit, young, competitive people who got injured either physically or or emotionally during their time of service, particularly in combat, and gave them an opportunity to regain that competitiveness and that that sort of joy of experiencing excitement again in their life. And I saw how life-changing that was for them, that people who had been very depressed, even suicidal, who had been stuck on a bunch of medications and weren't being helped, began to regain that joy in their life and began to regain some control over their life. And I really opened my eyes to how non-traditional therapies, whether it is sports events or equine therapy or service animals for emotional support, are a really important part of, of the way that healthcare can be delivered. And it's not just traditional medical techniques and prescribing medicines. And so it changed my perspective, both as a physician, but also as a leader of a healthcare system about how one can begin to implement and affect the health of populations of patients.
2: Dr. Shulkin, suicide is a critical concern for service member and veteran mental health and well-being. The rate of suicide among active duty troops has steadily risen. Over the past seven years, with a high of 25.9 per 100,000 individuals. Before the additional stress of the COVID 19 pandemic, and this compares to an overall rate of suicide in the US for everyone, that's 13.9 per 100,000 individuals. The current data indicates that an average of 20 veterans die from suicide per day. And you wrote a blog about this a few weeks ago on shulkenblog.com that outlined key strategies utilized by the VA to address the suicide prevention. Can you speak to how the agency is focusing on veteran suicide as its top clinical priority in the VA system? How does behavioral health integrate into primary care?
0: When I was secretary, I established as the top clinical priority for the Department of Veteran Affairs that prevention of suicide would be our top priority. With 20 veterans a day taking their life through suicide, it really is a staggering number of people that we're losing every day. A lot of effort has gone into trying to prevent suicide, but it's been a very, very tough issue to make progress in. And so we focused a lot of our efforts, uh, whether it was using predictive analytics to identify people at risk, whether it was changing the approach towards the way that we treat underlying conditions like PTSD and depression and different mental health conditions like substance abuse or chronic pain, or whether it was just simply reaching out to community organizations, churches and not-for-profit groups and veterans organizations and local and state governments to all work together in a coordinated fashion to identify patients at risk and get them help. These were the efforts in the Department of Veteran Affairs. Now, one of the things we know from the data is that if we could get veterans connected with VA services, particularly behavioral health care services, that they had a much lower rate of suicide than those that did not get care in the VA and were out in the broader community where behavioral health care services are so fragmented and access to behavioral health care is often challenging. So, the VA system itself is a very extraordinary system of behavioral health care. The primary tenant is that behavioral health care and physical or, or traditional primary care should be delivered together. So, there's a cohabitation between behavioral health care and primary care, where psychologists, psychiatrists, primary care doctors, advanced practice nurses, work together in the same locations, work together as part of a single team. And that, I think, is a very effective model of behavioral health care delivery. And this sort of separation between behavioral health care and physical health is sort of a remnant of our insurance practices, but it certainly doesn't make clinical sense. They should be  … offered together in an integrated approach, and that's the way the VA does tackle the healthcare delivery by integrating behavioral healthcare and physical healthcare.
2: Dr. Shulkin, I'd like you to comment on how we can make public service more doable in the country. Indeed, it shouldn't be that hard to serve your country… But you've seen firsthand how toxic, chaotic, subversive the culture is in Washington. I mean, you're the best secretary of veteran affairs that we've ever had, and you serve to uphold the Constitution, serve our veterans, stay true to the principles that you believe in. Despite your success and your proven loyalty to veterans, you were fired by tweet, all because you didn't have blind loyalty to the administration. Whole-person health care for veterans should be a bipartisan issue. Value-based healthcare. That improves patient outcomes, lower costs, and improves patient experience should be a bipartisan issue. Dr. Shulkin, how can we restore trust in our democracy, create a more bipartisan environment, get more healthcare leaders like yourself to come out of the private sector and to enter into public service so that we can win this race to value?
0: Well, you know, even though I had a very challenging experience, particularly in the Trump administration that you know I've said very openly has at times was very painful to sort of personally live through for, for myself and my family. I still strongly encourage people who are interested in public service to go and do it. I think it's not only an obligation of being a citizen in this country, but I think it can be extremely impactful and rewarding. And I see right now what's happening in Washington is is that uh, it still is not an easy place to serve. There's still too much partisanship politics, but we're beginning to see a return to what I would call more normal conditions, where there's less drama every day, where there is more transparency about what the public policy issues are, and I believe that we're headed in the right direction. And I think that we're seeing more people willing to raise their hands to go and serve in public service. And, you know, I think during the Trump administration, we saw somewhat of a brain drain. We saw a lot of career people and a lot of political people leaving the government. And, And I think that that constant churn of people is not good for public policy, and it's not good for ensuring the continuity of government. But I think we're now seeing a renewed interest in people willing to step up and serve. And I think that's a very positive thing. And as I said, I would encourage people to consider spending time in public service, do it with your eyes wide open, make sure that you know what you're getting into, prepare for it. But everything that is of value, it never comes without some pain and sacrifice and I think overall that the potential of benefits to both the country and to people personally is much greater when we have those that are very talented and experienced, willing to go and to serve in government. So I feel very optimistic that we're headed in the right direction.
1: Dr. Shulkin, I just want to circle back to how we introduced this episode. It's Military Health Appreciation Month. And it's so important that we remember those who are serving and, and that we don't just remember them in their time of service, but through the rest of their lives, that we serve those who served us. Winston Churchill said, never was so much owed by so many to so few. I'd just love to end with your parting thoughts on remembering our veterans.
0: Now, I really want to thank you for putting this program together during Military Appreciation Month. I think that One of the things that I learned and the honor that I had of serving in the VA, both as undersecretary and then as secretary, was getting to know those that have served our country and their families. And one has to realize that when somebody raises their hand to serve their country, it's really their entire family that does that. And they were really the inspiration for me to push on and to work hard, even when Um, at times, you know, I was discouraged in my role in government. I knew that the reason I was there was because of those that have served and continue to serve in active duty and their families. And just getting to know so many of these incredible Americans inspired me. And during Military Appreciation Month, I just want to express my gratitude for those that Continue to serve and those that have served our country, and wish that more people had exposure to the type of people that I've had the opportunity to, because we'd understand just how important they are to being able to keep our democracy strong and robust. And so, my strong appreciation and gratitude to all those that may be listening who serve or have served or families who support those that have served or continuing to serve. Just thank you from the bottom of my heart.